you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And if you're using one of the black hardback Bibles in the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 46. Exodus 3, I want to focus in particular on verse 14. But let me read for context and for reference through the message, verses 11 to 15. Our prayer this morning is to open our vision of the greatness and glory of God. And let's do so by hearing his word. Exodus 3, beginning in verse 11, it is written, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray for illumination as we consider his word together. Our great God and Father, unite our heart to fear your name, to wonder in your glory. And especially, we pray, your spirit would cause us to behold your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus. Be with all who hear to open the eyes of their heart. And be with the one who speaks that he might be bold and clear as he ought. We ask that your church would be built for your glory. And for the sake of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. When my eldest daughter was a baby... I would pick her up and say to her, I love you so much. But she only caught the last word of that, much. And so she would say to me in response, much, Daddy. And in fact, as she became a little toddler, she would often just toddle up to me on her own initiative and say, much, much, Daddy. Now, I never stopped her and said, Miriam, much is an adverb or a pronoun, and you are using it improperly. My little girl was giving a true expression of love to her daddy that fit her mental capacity and growth as a toddler. But as she's grown, she's learned that much is not actually a proper synonym for love in the English language. She now speaks more consistently and properly as she develops. And she says love, though, no less truly than she did when she just said much, much. The same is true of Christians as we learn about God. We speak, pray, or think about God as Christians in sincere but improper ways. Is it wrong? Of course not. Genuine communion with God is expressed often in our improper language, and God is not less loving than a human father. But as we grow, if we're to testify of him, if we're to think of him rightly, if we're to hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints in a shifting world, 
We must learn to think and speak coherently about God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. This is exactly what Moses needed as well. He was at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and he's foreshadowing here the giving of the covenant that's going to come on the other side of the Exodus to serve God on this mountain, as we read in verse 12. God's people, as we know, are going to be brought out from bondage to worship God at that mountain. But who will bring redemption? And who will be worshipped? So God is answering Israel's cries and questions by revealing himself as the God who is. In verses 14 and 15, we just read, God says his name is I am who I am, or I am, or the Lord, or Yahweh, which is a play off of I am, and the God of your fathers. But where God starts is just as significant as each of the names he gives to Israel for himself. Before God says who he is, he begins with the most basic and significant fact about him, that he is. And by revealing himself as the God who is, God means for us to consider his perfections, his glories, that we would trust and live and worship him rightly in this world. What I want to do is meditate especially on verse 14, and I want to consider four perfections of the God who is from this text. Four perfections of the divine being. We'll consider God as incomprehensible, God as independent, God as irreducible, and God as imminent. And all our sermon points start with the same same letter so that you know it's biblical. (laughs) We want to consider first, God is incomprehensible. He is incomprehensible. God says, I am who I am, or I am sent me. And you likely have a footnote in your Bibles that says, or you could translate this, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. I am who I am is the best rendering, and we're not going to spend a bunch of time with the ambiguities of Hebrew grammar here, because however you render it, the point carries. God specifies a subject, I am, and then with a pronoun specifies the predicate with the same, I am. It's circular. It's intentionally mysterious. It forces your attention back to the subject, I am. God is. Can you and I comprehend that? No. God is incomprehensible. Now that's not the same as saying God is unknowable or that we cannot apprehend something of him. We can, but we cannot comprehend him or contain him in our minds. We can go to a giant redwood and put our hands on the bark and truly apprehend it, but you can't get your arms around the circumference. Or you might live in this town your whole life and you might truly say, I know every inch of this town. But that's only possible because there are boundaries. There are limits. There is a circumference by which you can understand. But God is. That is to say, God is prior to all boundary or time 
any descriptor or limit or definable extent. There is no end to God that you can walk to and then stand back and gaze at all that God is. That's impossible. So he's incomprehensible to us. He cannot be comprehended. He's limitless. So we confess God is an incomprehensible mystery. And this is true, beloved, even in what he reveals of himself in Scripture. We cannot fully grasp what God says of himself in the Bible. God says he's eternal. Do you know what eternity is? You have no idea what eternity is. We cannot even fathom what it means to live without the succession of change that we call time. And we even betray ourselves by our language. We say things like the moment before creation. But friends, there were no moments before creation because there was no time before creation. Or we say things like eternity past, but there was no past in eternity because eternity has no time and no succession. We cannot even grasp some of the most fundamental ascriptions to the being of God that he gives us in his word. Or we'll say things and sing songs like our God is big, but big is a description of size and space and comparison. God has no circumference and no space. Even the word big is way too small for God. You see, we're used to assuming comprehension because we used to bleed people and now we have vaccines. We used to send smoke signals and now we send text messages around the world. We used to live our entire lives in a 15 to 20 mile radius and some of us drove farther than that to come to worship this morning. But beloved, none of our material or technological progress means we can gain any further comprehension on the God who is. We can know God truly and sufficiently for our life with him. We can say what is real and true about him but we will never comprehend what is fundamentally incomprehensible to us. There's an old far side cartoon depicting heaven. And it just has this guy sitting on a cloud and this, and the, the caption says, wish I'd brought a magazine. <laughs> a lot of Christians have bought that caricature of heaven and it fuels their indifference for eternity and even their worship today. But heaven will not be boring, beloved. And worship can never be boring because we worship a God who's incomprehensible. God cannot be boring because God has no boundaries. We hear this from David in Psalm 145 verses 1 to 3. We read this, Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. We will bless your name forever. You are great to be praised because there is no searching to you. Literally, there's no fathom. There's no bottom to God. There's no end to him. You will exalt God now and forever and forever because there is no end to him. There will be no last thing you ever learn about God because there is no last in God's perfect being. We wonder at the unfathomable God. And heaven will be the wonder of the unbounded glory of God's riches in Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.7. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable 
riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We cannot comprehend immeasurable riches of grace. Heaven will not be boring. It is the wonder of the incomprehensible God that inspires our motions of worship now. It is what was motivating Moses and Israel to come to that mountain to worship him. He is incomprehensible. And secondly, we see this is because God is independent. He's independent. If Moses asked us the question of verse 13, who shall I say is sending me, what would we say? How would we describe ourselves? Well, we would do it by relationship, by comparison. I'm Steve, a a, a human like other humans. I'm a man like other men. I'm a meister like other meisters. I'm a father like other fathers, American like other Americans, and, and, and so on. But God says, I am. He is not, he does not describe himself in a class with others. I am that, like other that's. He does not describe himself with other principles. I am this or like this. Instead, I am. It's been said that God is his own is. He's his own reason for being. That is, God does not depend on or derive from anything outside of him. So how should we speak of God? Well, what Christians have done is we've taken the to-be verb, I am, and we talk about God's being or his essence or his nature. But strictly speaking, God isn't a being. Because beings come to be. They are created and contained. God is not. And even strictly speaking, God doesn't have existence. He is existence. He did not come into exist. He cannot cease to exist. He is. He is self-sufficient and independent, he is his own existence. God is most absolute. And we call this God's independence, his self-sufficiency. The 10 cent word we hang on this in theology is called aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. It just comes from the Latin two words, ase, from himself. You can remember aseity because it sounds a little bit like the acai berry, you know, the, the super fruit. <laughs> Right? You like the super fruit. And aseity to God is like a super attribute. It, it, it's his absoluteness. It's his independence. It's his godness. He does not derive from or depend on anything else. He is. God is God. You remember what Paul the Apostle said at the end of Romans 11 verse 36. From him and through him and to him are all things. One theologian has said you could fit the entire Bible into that verse. If everything is from, to, and through God, that means God is not from anything. He is. He's from himself. And that must mean, thirdly then, if God is independent, God is irreducible. He's irreducible. If God reveals himself here as I am, as we've said, he has aseity. He's absolutely independent of all causes or principles or parts outside of him. So that must mean that God is the most irreducible being of all existence. That is to say, there's nothing more basic than God. And we call this God's 
simplicity. Now, that doesn't mean by simplicity that God is easy to understand. What we mean by simple is that God is not composed or compounded of other things. There's not a bunch of things that are put together to make up God. Something like simple syrup. Simple syrup is just one part sugar and water. There's not a bunch of ingredients to make the syrup. It's simple. God is simple. He's not compounded or composed of other things. He's pure spirit. This means when we consider what we call God's attributes or his perfections, that there's no distinction between them and the being of God. They're distinct in how we think about God as creatures and has God revealed himself, but they are not distinct in God himself. God is not a pizza or a pie that you slice up into various parts and say, well, here's the slice of holiness, here's the slice of love, here's the slice of justice, here's the slice of mercy. It's not like God is made up of these things. Holiness, love, and justice, and mercy, and his attributes, they're not ingredients that were put one day into a celestial pot, stirred for 20 minutes, and out came God. They are God. These didn't exist as eternal principles prior to God. They are God. God, Scripture says, is love. He is light. And if God wasn't simple, then he wouldn't be the creator of all things, because all things come from him, so he can't be made up of things outside of him. So when we attribute various perfections to God, what we're simply doing is describing God and his perfections and his glories and in his greatness. One way to think about this, or at least I like to think about it, is with coffee. I love good coffee, single origin, micro-roasted, freshly brewed by hand in a press or a pour-over. That is how civilized people drink coffee, if you didn't know that. We have a ton of great micro-roasters in Sacramento, where we're from, one of the reasons we love to stay there. Uh, and when coffee is properly sourced and roasted and properly brewed, you can enjoy the true complexities of good coffee. And in coffee tasting, or you call it cupping, you're supposed to actually slurp your coffee, even though you were told not to do so. That's actually the proper way to drink coffee. You slurp it in order that the oxygen in the coffee will coat all of your taste buds in your tongue, and you'll get the sense of all the notes of flavor. You can even get a tasting wheel, it's true, that has all the different notes that you can potentially taste in coffee to help you identify what you are tasting when you cup a particular cup of coffee. Now, importantly, these flavor notes that you recognize are not flavors that are added to coffee. Beloved, flavored coffee is from the evil one. So it's not, we're not talking about flavored coffee. Flavored notes are what you discern when you taste coffee. They're not ingredients that were put together to make the coffee. All that is in coffee is coffee. Are the flavors, though, when we taste them, real? Yes. It's what the coffee really evokes to our tastes and senses. When we left Sacramento last week, the last bag of coffee I finished, if I remember right, had on the bag uh, dark chocolate, citrus, dried cherry. Those were the flavored notes. 
that the roasters identified in that type of coffee. And roasters will put different flavor notes on the bag so you recognize, oh, this is the kind of flavor profile you're going to get from this type of coffee. But otherwise, because if we didn't do that, otherwise you would grab this bag and ask your local roaster, what does this taste like? Coffee? What does this taste like? Coffee? Well, when you brew this, what flavor will you get? Coffee. Because all that is in coffee is coffee. And so the flavor notes are necessary for us to describe really and truly what we are perceiving and tasting when we taste coffee. Now, this is something of what is meant when we speak of the attributes of God or of God's perfections. God acts and reveals himself as God. And if we could truly properly say, when God acts in judgment, what is that? Well, that's God acting consistent with God. When God moves to save, we could truly also say, what is that? Well, that's God acting consistent with God. But in order to keep us from being trapped in such circular statements, God has revealed himself according to real distinctions of his attributes, according to our perceptions and thoughts as creatures. So we think of God's justice and his holiness and his goodness and his love, his mercy and his grace. But we must always remember as we are talking about these things, we are not talking about things added to God. We are not talking about parts of God. We are talking about the glories of the only God who is acting as himself. We distinguish his attributes because of our finite inability to grasp infinitude and perfection. Each one is God acting as God, because God is. Now you may ask now, well, why is that important, except for a, maybe a few socially awkward, theologically minded geeks? Why is simplicity important to understand? Well, beloved, simplicity is what keeps being, the Trinity from being tritheism. Because the three persons of God are not three parts of God. They're not God divided up. It's the three persons of the one God distinguished only by the eternal relations. It's also what keeps the gospel from being what some critical theorists have called divine child abuse. But in the saving work of God, God assumed humanity to receive his own justice, satisfy his own offense, and bring us back to him. God saves but it's also, simplicity is very significant for the moral confusion we find now in our world and culture today. Our society says love is love. And that love is whatever you sense or feel or experience individually. But is that true? No. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. The independent irreducible God. And love is not a prior principle to which God submits. God is love. That means love is only true to the extent that it conforms to the one who brings it into existence. Him. You see, without the simple being of God, we are set adrift on a sea of subjectivity with no backstop or no foundation. Every exploration about the nature of love must eventually reduce to the irreducible God as the one who is and who causes it to be in creation. 
So when we are talking with our, our family, our friends, or our neighbors, or our co-workers, and the question comes up, you Christians say that all physical conduct outside of marriage between a man and a woman is wrong, and we'd say yes, well, why is that? Well, because it's in the Bible. And then our friend says, yes, but why, why is it in the Bible, and why should we believe what's in the Bible? Well, well, because the Bible is the Word of God. Well, why should we believe the Word of God? Why does what He has to say matter? Why is it good, true, and beautiful? Because God is. Eventually, every question reduces down to the most irreducible fact in the universe. God is. He is the one who has spoken. And it always ends there because everything began there. The one who is. We can reduce everything down only so far. And eventually we say what God was revealing to Moses. The irreducible God who is. And if he is, then that means fourthly, he is imminent. God is imminent. As we reflect on God's incomprehensibility, his independence, his irreducible simplicity, we often will wonder, does this make God too distant, too, too ethereal, too out there? Remember what Moses asked in verse 11. Who am I? That is a rhetorical way for Moses to say, I am weak. I am insufficient. I am uncertain. And he's facing the seemingly impossible task of redeeming God's people out from slavery on one of the most powerful empires on the face of the world. So Moses says, who am I? And God says, I am. He is sufficient. When God's weak servants ask, who am I? God answers, I am. And beloved, that is the final answer to every doubt, worry, and concern for God's people. He is. And God even gives in verse 15 his personal name, Yahweh. It's translated or, or transliterated as Lord in your Bibles. We think it should be pronounced Yahweh. It's a play on I am. That is, the independent, irreducible, incomprehensible God gave us a name so that whenever his people use it, we would always remember he is. He is the one who is. We can know him by that name. And notice also in verse 15, we can know him by his work. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We know who they are. We know their stories. And we have the word of God who's taught, taught us about his condescension to covenant and promise and deliver and redeem and work through these patriarchs. But remember, by the time you get here to Moses, it's been four centuries that God's people have been in slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh forgot who Joseph was, didn't care who Israel is. How do we know that the God who was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be for Moses and Israel? He is. The eternal an unchanging being of God. Beloved is the foundation for every confidence we have in God's continued faithfulness. We know God will always be who he was. 
Because God is who he is. Period. This is the same point that the Apostle Paul made over a millennium later in Athens in Acts 17. In Acts 17 verse 25, Paul declared in the Areopagus in Athens, The God who made the world is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. It's been said you could write volumes of theology books in that little phrase as though he needed anything. He is independent, self-sufficient, self-existent, irreducible, separate, before all and from whom all things are. Our creator and his creation are infinitely distinct. But then what does Paul say next in verse 26? And he himself gives to all mankind, life and breath and everything, that they should seek God. He is actually not far from each one of us. Do you see, it is God's absolute being that makes communion with him possible. Communication and relationship with God are possible because he's the most absolute, independent, irreducible God. If God were not distinct from his creation, could we have any genuine interaction with him? No. He would be indistinguishable, impossible to separate from the wind and the trees and the birds and the waves. He would be ever-changing. There would be no constancy as creation is constantly changing. And he would be completely impersonal like, like the force in Star Wars. Not a personal God that you can pray to and hear from. And if God could be altered or changed in any way by his creation, then relating to his creation would be a risk to the perfections of his being and he would have to keep his distance in a necessary self-protection. But because God is, we can seek him and we can, he can speak to us by his word and we can answer him in prayer. And both God's inaccessibility and his eminence are evident right here, even in this chapter. We didn't read it, but if you scan up to the top of this chapter in verse 2, we remember the familiar setting here as God came to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, burning, yet it wasn't consumed. The bush wasn't cons consumed. Because the fire was not sparked by creation, it wasn't fueled by it. God is independent of his creation. He is with it, but he is not of it. The fire couldn't be touched or grasped or contained or controlled. Even when God manifests his special presence in creation, he emphasizes his otherness, his independence, his incomprehensibility, his, our inability to contain him. But then what did God do? He called to Moses and he spoke. Now when Israel will return to this mountain. And God repeats the revelation here on a grander scale after Exodus. Moses describes what happened in Deuteronomy 4 verse 12. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. There was only voice or centuries later when the prophet Elijah 
was on the mountain of the Lord. In 1 Kings 19, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rock before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Wind, fire, earthquakes, everything that repels and defies human access, and the Lord is not in any of them. There was instead a voice, a sound, a word. God reveals himself to the eyes of our hearts through our ears. It is by his word that God makes himself known. We cannot access the incomprehensible being of God, but God can condescend to speak to us by his word, and we can answer in prayer. Beloved, this is why our worship is word-centered and hearing-directed, because the eyes of our heart and the sight of our mind are enlightened by the voice of God. It may seem lackluster, but how else could the infinite, independent, irreducible, inaccessible God communicate? Are we going to draw a picture of infinity or pure spirit? It's impossible. But God speaks. And God has spoken in many portions and in many ways. And in the last days, he spoke in his word made flesh. And if you remember, Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, assuming human nature, stood before his accusers, and he declared in John 8 that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And the Jews jeered when he said that. You've seen Abraham? And Jesus replied in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant because they pick up stones to stone him. And if it wasn't true, they would have been right. It would have been blasphemy. But the great I am had come and assumed humanity. And he had stepped into human existence. And at the end of the Lord Jesus' ministry, before the cross, the Lord declared to his disciples in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Notice Jesus did not say, I have truth and life and the way, but I am the all-sufficient, simple source as a man. It's been said the I am of the burning bush is the same as the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God the Son took on humanity to live a perfect life of righteousness for us and laid it down on the cross to be the substitute for the judgment our sins deserve, to be the source of salvation and life to all who trust him. All who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And beloved, we are reckoned righteous in the Lord Jesus by faith alone. And how can we confidently rest our faith on God's promises? Paul says this in Romans 4, 21 to 22. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Beloved, God is able to do what he promised. Because he is. And he always is. 
And we can be assured of the promises of the gospel. We can commune with God in prayer and praise. We can know he is with us always to the end of the age because he is. Dear Christian, God is. The God who is has spoken. And he has come to us in God the Son. And he came that we might be redeemed to worship him and to wonder and to have confidence in the great I am, the one who is. Amen. 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 Let's pray.